Are you ready to make a real difference in the world and especially to the people around you? Welcome to the Higher Purpose Podcast, where we celebrate the road less traveled in business, leadership, and life. We welcome you to another conversation that we believe will provide you with the insight and inspiration you need on your journey. Here's your host, Kevin Monroe. Welcome to episode 145 of the Higher Purpose Podcast. Uh, It's kind of fun saying that, and it's a pleasure to welcome you and have you join me today for this conversation. I'm wondering, how are you doing now? How are you holding up? Earlier today, I was on a live stream with five of my friends who are also podcasters, and we were sharing our reflections of what we're experiencing and what we've encountered through the first seven weeks of this global crisis. Like you, I don't know when this will end. I do know things will be different, and I hope some things will be dramatically different on the other side of this. And that sort of tees up today's conversation. It's another one that's been in the works for a while and finally happened now. And now is a beautiful time to welcome Raj Sisodia to explore this idea of the healing organization. I hope you enjoy this conversation and truly look forward to hearing your takeaways. Raj Sisodia, what a joy to have you join us here on the Higher Purpose Podcast. Welcome. Thank you, uh, Kevin. Uh, I'm happy to be with you today. Well, Raj, I feel like we're kindred souls. You have had a hand in some amazing books, books that have shaped the world of business and how we thought about work. And you've invited us to reimagine business and work. I mean, Firms of Endearment, Conscious Capitalism, Everybody Matters with Bob Chapman, who was with us just a few episodes back. And now, your latest book, The Healing Organization. And we've got plenty to dive into with that book. But before we do that, let's ground our time together in the good soil of gratitude. So, Raj, what's something you're grateful for in this moment? Well, I'm grateful for the fact that my family and I, and just about most people I know, are able to be safe and not suffer in any serious way through this crisis, even though it's mentally tough in many ways, and that we have the ability to ride through this. And not everybody does. So I am grateful for that. I don't take that for granted. I know how hard it is for many, many people to have this happen. So, Roger, I want to read a portion of the opening of your book to tee up the conversation and the question I want to ask. Mm -hmm. And I know you and I were just talking a moment ago, and part of that personal may really come out in your answer to this. But when I opened the book, writing this book is a sacred undertaking. It is something we had to do. It feels like our entire lives have been building toward this project. And then a couple of paragraphs later, we want to alleviate the unnecessary suffering physical, emotionally, spiritually, and financially caused by the way most business is done. We seek nothing less than the transformation of the workplace from a place of stress and fear to one of inspiration and growth from what feels to many like a miserable prison to a joyful playground. This book is not about the business of healing. It is about business 
as healing. Where do you want to unpack out of that force? Oh, so starting with the sacred undertaking. You know, this is not just another book. You know, and I was reminded of that. Uh, I was thinking about what my next project should be, and it had been a while. I was thinking about various ideas and sent several ideas to my editor from Everybody Matters, actually, Eric Nelson, because I had a wonderful experience working with him. And he kept sending them back, and he said, eh, nothing exciting here, you know? Like, what are you going to learn that you don't already know it? I mean, all those, maybe three or four of those. And then finally he said to me, Raj, you know, you don't write a book when it's time to write a book. You write a book when there's something that needs to be written. Mm. You know, that's coming through you and that has to be written. You don't have a choice. And as I sort of searched my subconscious for that, and I said, what is that idea? You know, what is that that needs to be written? And then I realized this idea of healing had been percolating in me. And I had been using it as an acronym for the qualities of a great purpose. I know your podcast is on purpose. And I have acronyms for all of the tenets of conscious capitalism. So for purpose, it's healing. For uh, conscious leadership, it's selfless. Mm -hmm. A conscious leader is selfless. And then that stands for eight qualities of selfless leaders. And then the stakeholders are described with the acronym SPICE, or SPICY, Society, Partners, Investors, Customers, Employees, and the Environment. And the cultures are tactile. You can feel them, but it also stands for the uh, seven qualities. So healing I've been using as uh, describing the qualities of a great purpose. It's heroic. It's evolving. It aligns all stakeholders together. It's loving. It's inspiring. It's natural. And it's galvanizing. Right? But then as I thought about that idea of healing itself, I said, it's more than that. You know, I said, if you look around, we live in a world of tremendous suffering. Independent of work, there's a lot of suffering. There's, I don't know, 17,000 children dying every day of preventable causes. I mean, there's 100,000 Americans dying a year from opioids. There's all kinds of this you know, depression, addiction, suicides, anxiety. All these things are rising. A lot of psychic suffering, planetary suffering, other species are dying out, etc. So I just recognized the amount of suffering, and I said, business seems to be adding to that. So the reason it became, so it was always an important, meaningful project to me. The reason it became a sacred undertaking was as I thought about, you know, I could just dive right into this book and just, you know, identify some good examples and interview them and write the stories and put, you know, the sort of context and then some lessons learned together. But then I got some beautiful advice from three different people independently. And these all happen to be women that I've known for a long time and I really look up to. So Lynn Twist, uh, then another friend of mine named Louisa, and then a coach I worked with. They all said to me, you know, Raj, you really need to take some time off. And if you're going to write about healing, you need to look at where you need to heal mm. and what in you needs to be healed. And delay the book. You know, there's no rush. You know, I had said no to a bunch of opportunities that have come up. And I said, no, I have a book deadline. I don't have time for all that. <laughs> And they said, no, delay the book and say yes to those things and then go further. And so I did. And I delayed the book by about uh, five months. And I said yes to a Himalayan retreat or a journey when I turned 60. That also happened to be kind of a turning point in life and looking back and making sense of things. I said yes to a silent retreat with Peter Sangi and others in upstate New York. 
which I had said make to no to already. And then I said yes to Lynn Twist and going on the founder's journey you know, with the Pachamama Alliance to Ecuador, deep in the rainforest, mm. and spent 10 days with native people there and, and learned some of the wisdom of the forest and the wisdom of these ancient cultures and, and reconnect in a deep way to nature. So all of that gave me a lot of time for introspection and uh, searching within and making sense of what had seemed like a pretty sort of random set of experiences in my life. I had an unusual childhood, unusual upbringing in many ways, and got to experience many different things. And so all of that really put me, first of all, made me realize that there are things that I want to explore there in terms of further continuing that journey and writing about it. So you know, I want to write a deeply personal book soon, you know, based on what I learned then. Uh, but also that this idea of healing, you know, there's so much suffering. And once you start bearing witness to that suffering, even third hand or second hand, right, by reading or, or talking to people, it becomes incumbent upon us to do whatever we can in the most meaningful way we can, to do something meaningful about it. Mm. Right. So I don't want this just to be another sort of, you know, quick book. I mean, every book that I've tried done has had a strong measure of that, but I think this one especially so, because we're dealing with human suffering and we're dealing with the suffering of animals and dealing with the suffering of life. And if we're going to say anything meaningful about it, we have to approach it as a sacred undertaking mm. and do everything in our power to do justice to that subject. So that's what Michael and I tried to do. And I think we labored over this book, uh, even though it moved pretty fast. Once I came back from all my journeys and travels and so forth, I mean, the book kind of poured out mm. in some ways. But uh, still, we took deep care over it. And, and uh, we feel every book has its own mission and purpose in this world and its own destiny and journey. We want to give this book every opportunity to have, it can have a pretty significant impact on, on suffering. Yes. Because we've seen the power of these ideas and these stories. You know, one, the other thing I learned is the power, this is the most story-driven book I've ever done. And that's deliberate. I mean, I've come to learn the power of stories mm. that engage us and move us and transform us in a deeper way. Oh, and there's some beautiful stories. In this. Yeah, really are. You know, I mean, my test in the member firms of endearment, 2005, the, the moment I knew that that was an important book for me and maybe the world is when I found myself in tears writing. Mm. Right, and I had a particular moment. I think it was June twelfth of two thousand five. You know, writing some of the stories in that book, and uh, I literally could not see my computer screen because. I was, uh, and I told David, I said, I never had a positive emotional reaction to my work before. Mm. I've, had, I've had lots of negative emotional reaction, you know, anger and frustration, and <laughs> <laughs> but never tears of joy. Mm. Right, mm. we have to listen to our body. And especially to our deepest emotions, you know. And so I had that multiple times in the course of writing this book, you know, many times. Mm. So, Raj, we're recording this conversation, if I've got my math correctly, it's day 47 of the coronavirus global pandemic, almost seven weeks since the pandemic was declared. And I just think that's such a profound time to be talking about the healing organization. So in what ways has this current crisis illuminated or even perhaps amplified your thoughts on healing organizations? Yeah, I mean, this has made explicit 
what was already quite evident and implicit, you know. I mean, I think I've used the language that we have an epidemic of suffering. I was using yes. that language, right? Uh, 120,000 Americans were dying every year from overwork, or not overwork, from stress connected to work. 600,000 Chinese were dying from overwork. You know, 87% of people were disengaged, 88% were disconnected from their companies and didn't feel they cared about, the companies didn't care about them. And then all the financial stress, 50% of Americans with less than $400 in the bank and not being able to raise $2,000. And all, I don't know what all that does to people. So I've been acutely aware of the, surf, the sort of hidden suffering, the silent suffering, right? I said, what we have in the world is an epidemic of silent suffering is the language I was using. And we were trying to surface that and, and show people that. Because again, if you, you will see it when you believe it. If you choose not to, I mean, see, people are stoic and people are heroic. They show up, they do their work. You know, but I can bet you that, you know, even without this pandemic, if you go and just 20 people you meet today, if you could see a thought bubble over their heads, you know, they're dealing with heartbreaking and challenging things, whether it's a child on opioids or a mother with Alzheimer's or not knowing how they're going to get through the week or potentially getting evicted or all kinds of heartbreaking things, you know. So all that suffering was there. And what this has done is that it has almost universalized it. It has made it evident and plain. You know, the needs are so clear. Everybody is vulnerable. I think our vulnerability is always what defines us as human beings. But this is what unites us in this moment. Mm. It doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. You have some advantages, obviously, as a rich person. But I mean, overall, I mean, we're all vulnerable to this. Absolutely so. So I think this just makes explicit what was already there mm. under the surface. I mean, we have the iceberg. You know, this is revealing the rest of the iceberg, you know, but it was always there. Yeah. Well, there was a line in your book, and I just smiled. I read it a few months ago, but when I was rereading parts of it for our conversation today, I found this line, before the year 2050, we will have to reinvent the ways in which we meet virtually all of our needs. Well, this crisis has rapidly accelerated that timeline, right? And suffering is multiplied around the world, magnified and multiplied. We see so much. And so what happens to your heart in recent weeks as you just have been more in touch with this, seeing more of the iceberg than we were seeing and seeing suffering at, at such a more profound, deeper level, broadly? Yeah. Now, I've been trying to see two things. First, how can I serve mm -hmm. in this moment? I think a lot of people are called upon to do that. If you see everything that's being offered out there, it's incredible. There's a cornucopia of talents and gifts that are being offered. And so that's one thing. And, you know, we've been working on a few things to do that, including some online sessions, of course, lots of webinars and, and uh, podcasts and so forth and some writing along those lines, but also thinking about the people in our lives who help us get through life. And so the person who helps, you know, who comes by and cleans the apartment, right? Or uh, even my barber, or people like that, and just reaching out to them or our tailor, somebody we take clothes to once in a while and, and say, you know, he's got a place on Newbury Street and how is he paying the rent? So just asking them, do you need help? Can we just pay you even though you're not cleaning our place, right? And uh, or can we kind of prepay you for mm. a couple of years worth of tailoring now? Whatever it is, it doesn't always have to be an exchange for some goods, you know. But just asking and saying, yeah, please, if you need help, 
I know there's some government help and there's other things that are happening, but not everybody's getting that. So I think just being aware of people in our lives that might be, and again, people are stoic and people feel hesitant to ask for help. But I think seeking out suffering and then alleviating that is even more, so it's become a more proactive rather than a reactive thing now. One of the stories in our book is about Grayson Bakery and Bernie Glassman, the Zen master who started it, who died while we were at it. He has this wonderful Buddhist wisdom, and one of which is the uh, the idea of bearing witness to the suffering of others, and then from that, you know, the uh, natural healing action with our eyes. Right, mm-hmm. and I think he embodied that in a deep way. So if he cared about the homeless, he would literally go and live on the streets for a week, take a group of people, and actually be homeless for a week, and then loving action arising from that, right? including the creation of Western Bakery came out of that. So I think opening our hearts to the suffering of others and also experiencing and acknowledging our own suffering and how that unites us. And that one of my insights in the journeys two years ago and especially in the rainforest was, uh, you know, we're all on earth to help each other. We're here to take care of each other. Mm. And um, one of the visions I got there was there's a woman in India who's known as the Hugging Saint. She's called Amma, which means mother. And she travels all over the world. And people will stand in line for 10 hours in the, mm-hmm. in the hot sun just waiting for a hug from her. And what they experience is unconditional love in that hug. And she doesn't even speak to them. She doesn't speak much English. And they walk away in tears, right, mm-hmm. having experienced that. And the message I got looking at this, this vision or this image of this line snaking in the sun with all these people waiting for a hug from this tiny woman at the end was that all these people could be hugging each other. Yeah. They have what they're looking for right next to them, mm. right in front of them. Mm. That we all have what we each other need mm. to get through this, right? Mm. It's only going to be humans helping humans to get through this. And I think we're going to get through it. And I think we're going to get through it with a relatively, hopefully manageable amount of human toll. Mm. You know, that won't be like mind-boggling, but of course a significant economic toll. But I think what it is doing is it's a dry run, you know, for some larger challenges that we're called upon to face. Yeah. I mean, we already have a global pandemic. It's just slower moving, and that's climate change, right? And it's even more devastating by far, orders of magnitude than this. But this pandemic is teaching us how to cooperate, how to mobilize rapidly, right? And how to work with our competitors, with the government, et cetera, and creative solutions for all kinds of things. You know? So it's engaging our creativity, our cooperation, and our compassion. I mean, there was something I was talking to the other day that's, I think, Verizon, they're saying there's something that they were on a five-year trajectory to do. I think it was a whole work at home kind of stuff. And they said, we did it in 10 days, what mm. we were planning to do in five years. We got all that done in 10 days. Mm. And a lot of these changes, you know, once you learn some new things, you can't unlearn them. Right. Right. And once your heart has been open, it, I think it will stay open. And so I think this will lead to uh, two things. One is some fundamental changes in how we relate to each other and how we take care of people first. Mm-hmm. We've gotten used to doing that in this period of time. I think we're going to continue that. And then, as I said, we're going to hopefully create a degree of resilience in our organizations and the ability to confront larger challenges going forward. Mm. The, the notion of being anti-fragile, you know, 
we're very fragile right now. Yeah. Right? And some industries, some companies like Delta and American, all those companies were, you know, I mean, literally they would have gone bankrupt within weeks in this kind of a situation, right? So we don't have strong balance sheets. You know, we don't have, we have risk management protocols, but they're not nearly uh, equipped to handle what we thought were rare events, which are going to become, you know, the so-called black swans are going to show up much more frequently. So Raj, in this context, for those that may not be familiar, would you define or describe the healing organization? What do you mean when you talk about a healing organization? So a healing organization recognizes what is the role of business in the world. Now, I'd say organization, our main focus is on businesses, and this could apply to nonprofits or any organization. Right. That's why we, say, we didn't say healing business, we said healing organization. But let's stick to the world of business, because all of our stories are from the world of business. There are plenty, there are 10 million nonprofits in the world, and most of them at some level are healing organizations at least in terms of what they're trying to do in the world. But we focus on business. So we're saying business is about, we can look at it multiple ways, right? So one is business is a way for us to make money. We find a gap in the market and we fill it, right? We get people to buy our stuff and we hire other people to make the stuff and then we do it, right? So we use others to basically achieve our personal goals, which are typically around money and success. A lot of businesses are built with that energy. Or we can say businesses that we human beings are here on this planet to take care of each other. Mm. If, if you buy that premise, we are here to take care of each other and our home, the planet. And we can do that in our normal lives for, I don't know, five people, 10 people maybe. But if I start a business, I can do that for 500 people, maybe 10,000 people or more. So we're here to take care of each other. Business is a way to do that at scale. Right? So if you think of business, and we start a business in order to express ourselves and serve others. Mm. Express my purpose, my passion, what makes me unique and why I'm here. And I channel that into serving others in that dimension. Right? As opposed to that I'm going to use others to serve myself. Mm -hmm. right? So if I approach it with that energy, then I'm going to heal people. Because when you meet somebody's real needs, whether they're a customer, whether they're an employee, whoever they are, community, if you meet somebody's real needs, not wants, desires, and addictions, but if you meet their real needs, then you're healing them. You're making them whole in that dimension. Mm. So a business done with that mindset, I believe, is fundamentally about healing. Mm. We're making people whole. We're meeting their needs that are real and tangible. And when you do that, then business becomes a place of healing for those who work there. Because you can leave at the end of each day physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and socially, better off and more fulfilled and healthier and stronger than when you came in because of what happened that, during that day. Business can be a source of healing for those we serve, our customers and our communities. You know, we bring them goods and services that make a positive difference in their lives. We don't just feed their addictions and, you know, and have a negative impact on their mental, physical, and emotional well-being which a lot of stuff that we do does, right? Mm -hmm. So we can be a place of healing, source of healing, and a force for healing in society. Business and capitalism is the way that we have figured out how we can cooperate with each other to achieve things which we can't do ourselves. And we show that how we can come together with a shared purpose and shared values. And despite our other seeming differences, 
you know, ethnic, religious, political, economic, whatever the differences are, we can come together and we can all be part of this family to do something together. And we can model that at a time when the world has never been more divided. And countries have never been more divided and families have never been more divided over political and other questions, right? So I think business can show us how to do that. Mm. So the opportunity is simply tremendous. The ability to do so is vast. Well, the thing I say is that the, the two things that are plentiful and have been locked away in the corporate closet in a way. One is silent suffering. There's just enormous silent suffering, right? There's people who they just have all kinds of things that they are dealing with. But the other one is unexpressed human caring. Mm. I think it's the most abundant, unused resource, underutilized resource in the world. We human beings have a need to care and a desire to care. It's what gives us deepest fulfillment in our lives. But the world of business doesn't really give us much opportunity for that, right? Business is about self-interest. It's about making money. It's about you achieving your goals and your target and getting your bonus and you know, making the numbers and all that. It's really not about caring. So if we can release, connect those two things, surface the silent suffering and then unleash the unexpressed caring, right? we have the opportunity to do, to mm. basically heal all that suffering and heal the one who's giving the help as well, right? You heal not only the person receiving, but also the person giving. And today, it's going this way, tomorrow it'll go the other way. You know? So I think that's where we create cultures of healing, where people, and the leader has to model that. We have to model the vulnerability and the willingness to express what we need. I want to ask you about that. What's different about a leader and how they see themselves or their role responsibility in a healing organization than other types. What's different about the leader? Well, the leader has a more expansive, expanded view of what it means to be a leader. And you love Everybody Matters and Bob Chapman, right? So Bob embodies that because Bob, for me, expanded my definition of leadership. Mm. It's not just about what happens nine to five, Monday to Friday for all our stakeholders, right? Including employees, et cetera, and what we do there. That's important. But is this that leadership is the stewardship of the lives entrusted to us? The way we lead impacts the way people live, right? And I think if we take that definition, then you're going to say, well, if it impacts the way people live and if people are suffering in the way they live, right? And I have something to do with that. When John Ratliff, in the book, The Story on Apple Tree Answers, when he felt a deep sense of shame, when he found out that one of his full-time employees, a mother of two, had been homeless for 10 days, and was not able to say that, even though the company had a program designed to help. And he said, what kind of a leader am I? Yeah. You know, what kind of company am I running here, right? So to have that mindset that the way we lead impacts the way people live, JBN Consulting, they said, well, if we ask our consultants to be on the road Monday to Friday, as consultants generally are, throughout the industry, then they will never see their children hardly ever see their children and their kids will grow up without them. And you can never get that time back. And that's too high a price to pay. We don't want to inflict that price. So they said children are stakeholders in our business. right? And therefore, we're going to start a practice where you don't have to travel. All your clients will be local. So these are actions that challenge sort of the, uh, the, the status quo or the usual way of doing things. Right? Because we have all these stupid rules about how things are supposed to be. <laughs> and a healing leader can look past all of that. And then so remove 
unnecessary suffering from the equation. But the healing leader, I think this is very important, is that if you haven't healed yourself, you can't be a healing leader to others. Mm. You're going to inflict suffering. As I say, hurt people, hurt people, right? Yeah. Or we become victims of victims. And so I think working on your own healing, and that is part of my journey, I had to work on my own healing mm. in order to be able to write this book. And, and that's a never-ending journey. It's not mm. that right. you are done. Right? There's, uh, there's a lot there to excavate and to surface and to uh, alleviate. So I would say, yeah, healing leaders have that consciousness. They see the suffering. They bear witness to it. And they're moved to do something about it. Not on an individual basis, but on a systemic level. You know, I, that show, The Undercover Boss. Yeah. It always struck me in the few episodes that I've seen is that the CEO has this awakening, oh my God, this is how tough the work is and this is how hard life is for the people in my company who are actually doing the frontline work. And you know, Susie is struggling with the debt and Alan is, uh, you know, is struggling with this. And at the end, they make a big show about writing a big check to Susie and doing something for Alan, whoever else they met in their journey. But they haven't addressed the systemic issue, yeah. right? There are lots of Susies and Alans that are suffering in many other ways, right? So again, doing that in a way that alleviates the system itself has to be, the leader is a system architect, and they have to create the system that does not inflict suffering. As we use the analogy in the book, you know, that's, there are bad apples, and then you can say, well, let's just blame the people and throw them out, bad apples, right? Or you can say they're bad barrels. There might be a department or an office that we have somewhere. Or we say that they're bad barrel makers. Right, so we have to build better barrels, as opposed to blame so-called bad apples. Right? So that's, I think, the role of the leader yeah. to create healing organizations. Okay, you alluded to a story from the book that I'm going to ask you to go deeper with in a moment, but and I'm going to do it in this context. Can any organization become a healing organization, or is it available only to those organizations that were birthed with that aim? Because some of the companies you profile were birthed out of that. You know, they had that noble beginning and they've had that vision from birth. But back to the, is it apple tree? Yeah. The parable of the potholes. Yeah. I cried reading that, Raj. Yeah. Yeah, that's a powerful story, yeah. Well, walk us through that just briefly to illustrate, because that's not a company that had this from the beginning. There was an epiphany they had. And you alluded to that just a moment ago about Eric, but go a little deeper, if you will. Yeah, so I would say it's rare that companies are born this way, because this consciousness hasn't been around, right? I mean, conscious businesses, which I think of healing organizations as kind of super conscious, right? They have a different level of consciousness. They're still conscious businesses. So I would say that every business can become a healing organization. As our friend Ed Freeman says, that uh, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. <laughs> right? So there's always hope and there's always a way to turn it around tomorrow. You can start in the next hour to turn this thing around. Right? So that can always happen. And that's what we seek to do with books like this, is to inspire people. Mm-hmm. And we've had a number of people say, wow, oh, wow Monday I'm going to instill this, this, and this policy. I'm going to borrow this from Apple Tree, and I'm going to borrow that from JBM, and I'm going to do this from uh, Jaipur Rooks, right? and many other examples that are in there. They're very practical and easy to implement, I think, in many cases. So Apple Tree Answers is an example of a company that did not have this in the consciousness as well. It's the uh, second largest call center company. I think John created it by doing what's called a roll-up. Mm-hmm. So it's a fragmented industry, lots of little things. You just 
put them together and you share some back office operations and some technology and you create some efficiencies that way and they rose to be the second largest i think in the industry but then as he started to manage this much larger organization and started to become more systematic about it he started to see that there were some stark differences mm. between parts of the organization so it's kind of like in india we have a caste system which is one of the curses and we write about that in the jaipur rug story but every company has a caste system there's the the priestly class which are the college educated professional full time benefits leadership development programs you know bonus all kinds of things right career path development and so on. that's 10 15% of the people in many companies and then you have the 80 85% of the people who are hourly paid typically not college educated high turnover low engagement right low benefits if any and nobody really cares they sort of show them up and sit them out kind of thing so that's what he found so when he was looking at employee engagement and turnover numbers at the aggregate level it showed me showed him one thing somewhat mediocre numbers but then when he asked for it to be broken out by salaried versus hourly he found a stark sort of polar opposite numbers with the salaried people he found high engagement and he found very low turnover in the teams and with the hourly people he found extremely low engagement in the teams and he found a turnover of 118% a year mm. which means the average person was lasting about 8 to 10 months he said wow that's a very high turnover what can i do about that and then to put it in perspective he was flying to a conference in toronto industry conference and he mentions this uh, what's on your mind well why wow, about this crazy employee turnover i'm trying to deal with and tells the guy and he says well how much is 118 he says wow how do you do that the industry average is 150 <laughs> we need to learn from you <laughs> what you're doing right and he said how is that okay so he came back he tried to ask people tell me you know what would make your life better what is it that causes the stock to you know? well so one thing these we sit in our chairs all day and they're giving us back aches you know they're terrible chairs oh you know that we never asked so they started replacing the chairs and they basically instilled a practice of saying every day try to tell us something that we can do to make your job better here so they made a bunch of improvements that way but then john also started to realize just the reality of their lives right that given what they were getting paid and what the cost of living is and so forth and then we have seen some of the statistics at a national level of how little money people have saved up and how many people i mean literally 100 million people are living paycheck to paycheck in this country as my friend safwan likes to say there's a third world hidden inside the belly of america which is 60% of our you know workers literally are hourly and most are paycheck to paycheck which means there's no buffer between them and ruin and so he started and and the metaphor or the story that we used to illustrate that is that imagine our cfo is driving to work in her mercedes and her car hits this big pothole on the on the highway and her tire blows out and her rim gets damaged and she pulls over and she calls aaa and they tow the car to the mercedes dealer and then she gets a ride to the office and shows up an hour late and everybody's very concerned about her well-being and offering her coffee and say my god that must have been so scary to have a tire blow out like that we're glad you're okay and later that afternoon the car gets delivered and it's fixed and repaired and washed and cleaned and and the insurance covered most of the cost and so this was a non event in her life but we were very solicitous of her well being and then he said imagine one of our hourly workers is driving the same road in her 800 dollar 16 year old car and uh, she also hits the same pothole and her tire and rim you know get damaged she doesn't have to pull a you know kind of all that 
but she'd have to get this car towed. She had to call around to towing companies, and then she couldn't afford the thirty-five dollars it would have cost her to get a taxi or Uber. So she calls for her friends, and finally somebody comes and picks her up and drops her in the office. And she was told, the "Supervisor wants to see you. He's pretty upset." And she goes in, and he says, "This is unacceptable, unprofessional." Gives her a black check mark against her record, and he's, she's told two more of these, and you will be fired. And then at the end of that, she's told, "Now go and answer the phones and be nice to our customers." Even though she's nearly in tears, so not only do we not give her a helping hand, we kick her when she's down. Mm. Now this poor woman goes through the rest of her day, and she has no idea how she's going to pay for whatever this is going to cost. She has one hundred and sixty dollars in the bank. She doesn't know how she's going to get home and how she's going to get to work tomorrow and how she's going to get the kids to their school and you know, the whole her life is falling apart, right? Because of this one pothole. Hmm. So John uses this story to illustrate that, oh, my God, I know that people have needs, so we need to set up a program called Dream On, and we said, we know that life has potholes, and we don't want your life to get derailed. And so, please, we've created a fund, and we want uh, you to apply on this website, and we'll, we'll do what we can to help as many people as we can. So they put it out there, and then they sit and wait, and nothing happens. One day, two day, five days go by, nothing happens. So almost ten days later, finally they get their first submission on that website, and it's a woman who starts out by saying, "I'm so sorry, mm. but I need help. My ex-husband stopped paying alimony two weeks ago, and I, we got evicted. My two kids and I got evicted uh, a week ago, and we've been living in the car now for a week. And I'm so sorry, but I can't do this to them anymore." I need help, and that's when John read that, and he had tears, and he said, "All I felt is a deep sense of shame. What kind of leader am I? What kind of human am I? What kind of company am I running here? It takes a mother ten days to let us know." So of course they reach out to her immediately, and they get her into a hotel that night, and they help her then get into another apartment in a week, and they help her overcome those hurdles that are too high for most people. So many tens of millions, right? First month, last month, security deposit. Like, who has that saved up to get into a new apartment? People end up living in short-term things and hotels and whatnot. So they did all that, and then they said to her, "You know, if you would rather keep this confidential, that's fine. You know, you don't have to tell." She said, "Nobody has ever done anything this nice for me in my entire life. So I'm going to tell everybody I know." And of course, she did, and the word got out, and the floodgates opened, and you know, so many people. Submitted a number of other people are homeless, and many other heartbreaking stories came out of that. And they did have something to help them all. The culture of this company turned around dramatically, and I believe their last reported turnover was like 16% employee turnover, which is a pretty good measure of how well people are doing there, right? In this kind of a job, right? It had 118%. Right. Yeah. So this goes back to that idea that you bring out through the book. The healing organization, it's good for business too. Well, of course, you know, doing the right thing. Yeah. It's always, I mean, that's in terms of endearment, everybody matters. I mean, that's a red thread throughout all of this, right? It shouldn't be a necessary condition for people to say, okay, well, then I'll do the right thing because it's going to be better for the business. I always tell leaders, because I get a lot of people going to chapter six of terms of endearment and say, wow. Nine to one over ten years, right? And let's do this, right? Or they look at the appendix in the conscious capitalism book, and they say, "Let's do this." For that reason, I said, "Well, if that's the only reason you're doing it, it's not right. going to work." 
Okay, you have to do the right things for the right reasons. Yeah. You have to believe that taking care of people is the right thing to do. You have to believe that preventing the suffering of the children of your employees is the right thing to do. Right? It's like a few years ago, there was a smiley face on the cover of Harvard Business Review and it said, happiness is profitable. Yeah. Right? And after that, a whole bunch of CEOs are going around saying, okay, how do we get some happiness around here? Okay, what do we do? <laughs> because happiness is profitable. Well, it's this, my friend Fred Kaufman in his book wrote this analogy, which I love. He said, it's like asking somebody to marry you. And she says, why do you want to marry me? So, well, I read that married men live five years longer. And they earn 30% more in their lifetime, right? So I think it's a great idea to get married. So she probably will not or should not say yes. So we should marry for love and we should do, you know, we should take care of people out of love. You know, as Herb Kelleher said, he's kind of our patron saint of all this, right? Mm -hmm. The business of business is people. Yeah. Yesterday, today, and forever. I think we lost sight of that. I don't know when, but people were somewhere like third or fourth on the list. It's about profits, it's about growth, it's about market share, it's about the ego of the leaders, you know, it's all that. The well-being of people is only an instrumental way of right, contributing to greater you know, profits. I mean, it, that has to change. And that's, I think, the biggest change I'm hoping to see out of this crisis. People be restored to where they need to be. It's like a Copernican revolution. The sun didn't revolve around the earth. So business shouldn't revolve around profits. Business should revolve around people. The way to serve people. And, and if you have profits, that means you know you're doing it in a sustainable, scalable way. So, Raj, when you said that, it took me back. This may be one of the first times I've highlighted a phrase from a foreword in a book. Mm. But Tom Peters wrote, I continue to be amazed that People First is still news. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like you say, it makes sense, but it still seems so counterintuitive to some people. They just go, oh, oh, really? You know, they did all of that because it was the right thing to do, and their retention rate went up. Because, see, we don't have systems thinkers. We don't have systems thinkers, and we don't have, you know, in the corporate suites, we don't have people who really feel this. You know, they don't have the deep level of empathy, mm -hmm. right? And so they think of business as a simple linear equation. Profit equals everybody's cost. It's all about profit, right? They don't question that premise. And therefore, how do you maximize profit? You maximize revenue, you minimize cost. A fourth grader can understand that equation. You need the analytical and emotional intelligence. <laughs> Even fourth graders probably have better emotional intelligence than that, actually. But so profit equals revenue. So maximize revenue, sell as much, charge as much as we can, minimize costs, pay our people as little as possible. It's a cost. Pay our suppliers as little as possible, squeeze them externalize whatever we can onto society or into the future, right? And we've achieved our goal. Well, that's not worth anything. That's not a business. That's a parasite. Yeah. That you're sucking value out of people and out of the future and of our children and you know, the environment and other species. A true business creates value, right? It enhances the well-being of every part of our system, every life that is touched by it. So, Raj, our time is getting away from us before it does. And since this is the Higher Purpose podcast, I got to ask, what's the role of higher purpose in a healing organization? Well, it basically says that every purpose needs to be a healing purpose. Every business, not only as an acronym, but actually as a healing purpose, which means what? Alleviate suffering, elevate joy, mm. and promote healthy growth through your business. And do that in whatever way you choose to. You could be an airline, you could be a hotel, you could be a publisher, you could be a restaurant, you could, I don't care. 
you can still do that in a healing way. And as Bob Chapman, again, another thing that he taught me, there is a product-centered purpose and a people-centered purpose, right? As he said, our products don't excite people. We make machines that make cardboard boxes and toilet paper. But our purpose is our people. We measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. Well, I said, every business has people. Yeah. So every business is a high-purpose business, right? And then, ideally, it's like a plane with two engines, a jet plane with two, two engines, right? You can fly a plane on one engine. And if you had to pick the product or people engine, I would pick the people engine first. Because there are companies that have a noble purpose in the world, but there are places of suffering for their own employees. And that's not acceptable, right? But ideally, you want both. So you want a product-centered purpose, which is about what we're doing for our customers and in the world. And a people-centered purpose is what we're doing for our people. And mm. both of those have to be healing purposes. Mm. You know, the way joy, reduce suffering, promote healthy growth. So there's a growth that's healthy and there's a growth that's cancerous. We have too much of the latter in the world. We use the 3G capital example in the book, right, of the kind of unhealthy growth. Every business wants to grow. I ask them, why do you want to grow? Why do you deserve to grow? Why would the world be better if you grew? Mm. And many businesses, the answer is, wow, the world gets pretty dark and dim when we grow. Mm. You know, I believe. I say that about 3G Capital. Life gets difficult, you know, and dark when they show up in town mm. and, buy, and buy your company. You know, the life is going to become grim. When Bob Chapman shows up, you know, life is going to get better. Mm. That town will have a future. Your children will have a future. Right? You have a future. Yeah. Only financially, you'll have respect and dignity and meaning and joy and fulfillment. Mm. So Bob has feels an obligation to grow. Yeah. Bob doesn't need to grow. He doesn't need the money, right? Bob is in his 70s and he's got 26 grandchildren now. And he had 108 companies when I talked to him a couple of years ago. And I said, what are you? He said, I'm buying another 12 companies this year. I said, Bob, when does this stop? <laughs> you got 26 grandchildren. Like when the number of companies exceeds the number of grandchildren, maybe you've reached your limit. He said, Rob, I don't know how much time I have left. On my deathbed, I will not be proud of the machines we built or the money I made. I will be proud of the lives we touched. And before I go, I want to touch as many lives as I can. And I said, Bob, you're not running a business. You're growing a ministry. You're spreading a healing ministry. And I think in some ways, this idea of healing also came from that experience. Mm. I kind of reframed everybody matters. I said, that's a healing organization. Yeah, it you is. Know. Yeah, one of the companies that they just adopted in Europe, they were not the highest paying suitor. Oh, yeah. That's pretty the, common. But the company understood the yeah. value they were bringing in terms of culture and the benefit for their people was far outweighed the difference in the bid. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Raj, as we wrap this up, closing words, what would you like to interject in this conversation to bring it to a fitting close for you? Well, you know, we end the book with something we call the healing oath. Yeah. And we ask leaders, if they are moved by this, to actually adopt that. And not only quietly, but actually to adopt it in a very public way. I don't know if, I don't have a copy of the book around me, but if you have it, then just read it. The Healing Oath. We see this book as part of a movement to change the world of business and make it about love and healing instead of fear and survival. If you'd like to be part of this movement, begin by taking the Healing Oath. Place your left hand on your heart. 
and raise your right hand and proclaim, first, do no harm. I will operate my business in a way that causes no harm to others or to the earth. Root out evil. I will never enable or collude with abuse or exploitation. I will be an everyday hero who stands up for fairness, truth, beauty, integrity, and basic goodness. Love conquers all. I will operate from love. I will measure success by the fulfillment, abundance, and joy I generate for others. Yeah. Good note to end on that. Beautiful note to end on. Raj, thanks for joining. You're very welcome. Uh, thank you for having me, Kevin. For people that want to get in touch with you or find more about the healing organization, where do we direct them? So rajasodia.com is my website, and then healing organizations with an S at the end, uh, .com is the uh, book website. So there's ways to communicate with us that way. Thanks again, Raj. You are very welcome. Thank you. Well, if you enjoyed this conversation, please make sure you listen to episode 140, Truly Human Leadership with Bob Chapman. I didn't really understand the depth of how working with Bob on the book, Everybody Matters, as Raj was his co-author, influenced Raj in the writing of this book, The Healing Organization. So those two go together nicely if you've not heard that one. Let me ask, do you agree? that business has the opportunity and even the responsibility to alleviate suffering and elevate joy? Well, I do. That's one way a healing organization envisions its role in the world. And it's one hope I have that many organizations will wake up and embrace their opportunity to become healing organizations. And I so enjoyed the parable of the pothole that Rod shared about apple tree answers and how that sparked their leaders to get serious about living their values and how caring for their people and helping their employees fulfill their dreams actually had a dramatic impact on business, transforming the culture and the experience of work there for all. Raj didn't get into this so much in the conversation, but here's the question that all leaders in the company started asking on a regular basis. What action can I take now to make your experience as an employee better today than it was yesterday? What a powerful question. Imagine the impact that would have if more leaders and managers were asking that question of someone in their span of care on a daily basis. Do you have a topic you'd love to hear explored in an upcoming podcast? Or do you know someone you'd love to recommend as a guest and hear engaged in a conversation here? If you do, please contact me. Here's how you do that if you don't already have me in your phone. Email me, kevin at higherpurposepodcast.com or call or text me, 678-744-5111. Until we connect again, and I hope it is soon, keep shining your light and sharing your love to illuminate the path forward for others on this road less traveled in business, leadership, and life. Thanks for being a difference maker. What could 10 days of gratitude do for you? 
find out what hundreds of people have experienced and make a change that can last a lifetime at thegratitudechallenge.community because it's better when we do things together.